One of the primary qualities of being that many, many people or yogis, as we call people who practice here whenever they're practicing here, you become a yogi for the time that you're here. Um, Many, many people take with them when they leave a retreat here is a a deeper and expanded sense of the heart of kindness, the heart of generosity. And it continues as we leave here with these deepened and expanded qualities of being. They continue to feed us, feed our life. and feed and change our life in many, many small ways and sometimes larger ways. When we remember again these qualities, whenever our heart touches into these places again, and it feeds our life both in relation to ourself and in relation to all of the others in our life, all of the relationships in our life. This uh, practice of kindness, of generosity, actually begins just as soon as you get here. Or actually, I think it begins... uh, as soon as you decide to come here. Or maybe it actually begins when you first begin contemplating the possibility of coming to the family retreat. A couple of days ago, someone um, here on the IMS staff said to me that It's really amazingly wonderful to have the family retreat here. It gives so much here. It rounds this place out, she said. She said it normalizes everything. And then uh, just the other evening, another staff person said to me that the incredible, lively, bright energy of the children here is such a gift. It's experienced by many of the staff, even if they don't show up <laughs> or you don't see them much, that energy uh, is felt uh, as a gift. So your practice here, as you come here and practice your uh, whole family's practice, the whole of a family practice, and your sitting, your sitting practice here in the hall, and the movement back and forth between the two is a great gift. It's a, it's a joy, and it's a great inspiration for all of the rest of 
the IMS extended family, and of course, uh, each of you inspiring each other in various ways. And first and foremost, I think, beginning with the gift that you give to yourself for coming here, in coming here. It's probably one of the kindest, most generous things that you could ever offer yourself. Because it's the most unselfish offering you can give yourself. It just keeps on extending outward, beyond ourself, family, this village, this temporary village we've created, the extended IMS family, and just on and on and on in wider and wider and wider circles, touching all the beings that touch our life and that our life touches as things unfold. So I'd like to thank you for your practice. Thank you for coming here and for sharing your practice in all of the ways that you do. This circle of kindness and generosity here um, is just a a constant uh, movement of that. There's so much given to all of us that practice here. Every time I come back here, having lived here for a number of years, and now when I come back to teach, um, I'm touched really deeply every time I come back here by the um, amazing kindness and generosity that I feel as soon as I drive up the driveway and walk inside. It's incredible. It's like palpable, you know. Um, so many different ways that it happens here. The, all of the many, many teachers that offer the teachings year in and year out, all the care given to all of us that are here from the staff in just many, many seen and unseen ways. It's boundless and it um, never ends, it seems. And then the pretty much unseen extended family, which is huge, uh, IMS family, that does all kinds of things that help keep this place going for all of us and many, many more. I'd like to uh, share a story with you, a true story, Um, a story about giving, uh, a story about what in the Pali language is called dana. Um, The word dana translates into generosity or uh, giving or offering. And this is a, a story, a very special experience that happened in my life about 15 years ago. There were a number of years when I lived in Michigan at that time, and there were uh, a number of years then where I had a Native American teacher. He used to come 
to the place that I lived in, or near, in Michigan, out in the, out in the woods, um, uh, to an ecology center that I was the um, director of. And he would offer his teachings. And every year, once or twice a year, he'd come and stay for a period of time. So one of these years, about 15 years ago, I um, offered my home for him and his um, extended family, or his family, his wife, and uh, thought there might be a couple of other people with him to stay at my home. I lived in a small uh, log cabin, just a few rooms, and I had one of my sons was still uh, living with me then in the woods about um, a quarter of a mile down from the ecology center down the road. So the day came that uh, Wallace Black Elk, his name, uh, came to our home for 10 days he was supposed to stay. And a car pulled up in our driveway, kind of an old jalopy of a car. And Wallace was the first one to get out of the car. He's over six feet tall and a big, big man, besides being fairly tall. Uh, had on cowboy boots and uh, blue jeans and a plaid shirt and long braids braided with uh, red yarn in them and a big uh, cowboy hat. That's the way he dressed. He lives in Colorado. and. Native American man, and so he got out and looked even bigger than he looks when he takes his hat off and his boots off. And then other people proceeded to get out of the car. Um, for his wife got out, and then more people, and more people, and more people. It looked like uh, uh, those circus cars. Uh, where the clowns keep getting out and getting out, and you can't imagine how many people could fit in such a small car. And it was happening before her very eyes. <laughs> uh, seven people emerged out of that car. Um, I mean, there are big cars, you know, but this wasn't one. <laughs> so seven people got out, his wife and himself, and then all these other helpers, his extended family, that we had no idea were coming uh, to stay with us. We also had uh, myself, my son, and I think three others in the house with us who we'd asked to come and help us. So, seven, eight, nine, ten, there were about a dozen people, I think, to stay in our little tiny house. Um, we couldn't imagine how this was going to work. We hadn't planned for it, and uh, how could we all live there together? How would we have enough food? Where would we all sleep? Well, uh, the space expanded, or so it seemed, anyways. Um, people slept all over the floor. They slept in all nooks and crannies, except in the kitchen. There were, at night, or it actually was sort of in the morning by the time we got to sleep, sleeping everywhere. And food would appear. 
we didn't have much money to buy uh, food for that many people because we didn't know we were going to have that many people. But food would appear, dishes uh, of food cooked and uncooked and fresh, and they would appear at the door or they we, we would come back from our evening teachings and they would be all over the stove or the kitchen counter. Um, And sometimes there were many more people than the dozen of the people that were living in our house for these 10 days because the way the rhythm of this um, whole 10 days was that we were on Indian time and uh, the sweats began after dark, which uh, at that time of year was like nine o'clock. We would start preparing. By the time we finished our sweat uh, ceremonies and the teachings was about one o'clock in the morning. That was time for dinner. That was when we had dinner because you couldn't have dinner before the sweats. Uh, it wasn't healthy to do that. So we'd come home uh, to prepare dinner at one o'clock in the morning. Completely different schedule than I was used to or my son was used to. We had to give up our preferences. That was one of them that we had to give up, was the ways that we uh, normally sleep and the times of day and time that we're awake. We had to give up a number of other preferences. Um, Wallace and his wife and most of the helpers, I, at the moment it seems like all of them, when I remember the atmosphere in the house, smoked a lot of cigarettes. And uh, I um, didn't smoke. I'm not sure if my son did at that time, but if he did, he had to smoke outside. But we couldn't ask them all to smoke outside. It wasn't appropriate because of this situation. So there was lots of cigarette smoke all the time in the house, kind of clouds of it. They also ate a lot of meat, or they eat a lot of meat. Um, at that point, I was a, just a vegetarian, not eating any meat at all, but we had to cook lots of meat for them because that's what they were used to. They also drank a lot of um, soda, uh, Coke and other uh, kinds of soda, big bottles of it, which we had to keep them supplied with, which also was not something that we ever had in our house. So it was, um, it was necessary to give up a lot of our preferences, a lot of our um, habitual ways, which we did, because there they were. And they were offering particularly Wallace and the others assisting him, just offering hours of, generously offering hours of teaching. Because we finished our sweat lodge um, ceremonies and the teachings that went with that about one o'clock in the morning, then had dinner, we usually didn't get to bed until 2.33 every night. So needless to say, no one got up very early. The rhythm was get up around 11 o'clock in the morning. And then people would start coming over. So sometimes there would be 25 people sitting in the living room. And Wallace would eat his food and drink his coffee and smoke cigarettes, etc., etc. And people would be sitting all over um, the living room, which was the dining room, which was the kitchen. Uh, the same room, essentially, listening to him. And he would just talk and talk and offer his earth wisdom. Uh, 
and people would listen, and sometimes there'd be dialogue, and it would go on for hours. And many times those people would stay to eat, if, and so there. But there was always plenty of food. It was very amazing. So the house expanded. We never, we never felt crowded. Truly, we never felt crowded. We actually felt very comfortable, and we never were hungry. There was lots and lots of food. And this went on for 10 days, which was, I think at the first night of this retreat, I talked about timeless time being the time of children. Um, This was one of those timeless times where the days went, the nights went, the the hours went, and there was no um, boundary around it. It just flowed comfortably. The last night before Wallace and his uh, extended family um, were going to leave, after we finished everything, at whatever time that was, two o'clock in the morning or something, they wanted to do a ceremony with my son and I. And nobody else was invited. Everyone else had gone. It just, uh, the nobody else meant there were still a dozen people there. Um, they wanted to do a ceremony for, with and for my son and I a grati- in gratitude for uh, Thanksgiving, he called it, um, for uh, having them live with us and taking care of them for all those days. So we sat in a circle, which is the Indian way, uh, and we didn't make a campfire in the middle of the living room, but we made a little altar of things um, that we all kind of put in in the center of the circle. Things from nature uh, that we had either in my house or collected over the days that other, other people had also and given to us. And we had then a, a circle of, of sharing words, words of appreciation and words of gratitude, words of love, with each other. Kind of went around and everybody said something in that, in that, uh, in that vein. And then Wallace um, and his uh, extended family gave gifts to my son and I. They gave us these treasures that they had brought with them. Some of, some of the things were things that they had made um, um, a beautiful mandala uh, shield from uh, the Lakota tribe that one of them had made was given to my son and, and other very beautiful gifts um, natural objects uh, and handmade objects as uh, in gratitude for the ten days And then Wallace um, spoke to all of us. And he said that when one offers, uh, when one gives one's uh, space or one's home, particularly in this case, 
He said it expands. It never feels crowded if it's given uh, from the heart. And then he, he spoke about if one gives one's material objects, material possessions, things like food or even particular objects of treasure uh, or money or clothing, the material world. Um, he said there's always enough. He said more than there's always enough, there's abundance. it's given from the heart. And then he spoke about um, if one gives from one's heart really freely, openly, gives love, gives care, offers the heart of unconditional caring and compassion, one never feels alone. One never feels empty. One never feels separate. He said there's, there's always this sense, no matter if you're with someone or not, if you live out of that place of connection, always a sense of caring, never a sense of lack. It's this seamless circle, he told us, that one lives in of spaciousness and ease when we live out of that place of the heart of kindness and generosity. He said it's a seamless circle of abundance, a seamless circle of love. And so uh, that evening, after this ten days of a kind of seamless circle of time and love and space and food and uh, everything that was needed, um, sitting in this circle in my living room and sharing more, you know, the generosity of, of sharing... Uh, about the sharing. (laughs) It was very inspiring. I've never forgotten it, obviously. Um, The next morning, they left. Everyone left except my son and I. We walked them out to their uh, vehicle, and then some of the other folks that we had invited had their own vehicle, and they also left in their car And my son and I walked back into our house and stood in the middle of our living room and we were just looking around and uh, we were amazed at how it seemed that the space had shrunk again. And we we didn't say anything to each other for a little while, but we were both looking around and we'd look at each other and these little frowns on our faces. And then we said it both kind of at the same time, this space has shrunk. It had been so incredibly expanded over the past ten days in this kind of circular, seamless days of this endless generosity coming and going from every direction uh, in just 
so many different ways. Um, we were really surprised at how tiny our house seemed. Again. <laughs> and we looked at each other and said, did this really happen here? It was like, it felt magical. It felt uh, kind of magical that our 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 hearts were still so open and felt uh, so expanded, like the house had been, but the house seemed to be this little tiny place again. It was a very uh, powerful, powerful teaching for me, that whole experience, um, and really has informed my life in ways since then. My son also. I'd like to say a little bit um, about generosity in the Buddhist tradition. Not dissimilar uh, in the essence of the teachings from what Wallace um, was teaching us. In Asian countries, um, dana, or generosity, is actually the primary practice for most lay people. Many of the lay Buddhists don't practice meditation much. Some may some, and they do maybe at certain periods of time in their life. But generosity is the practice. Historically, the Buddhist teachings um, have always been offered freely, by the monks, by the nuns, by specific Buddhist teachers. Because the teachings are so precious, they're such beautiful teachings, uh, it's just not possible to put any price on them. At least that's how it was felt, has been felt for centuries, from the time of the Buddha on, in countries where they're really um, a part of life. So there's never been a price put on them in 2,500 years. The monks and nuns offer the teachings freely, and the laity, in turn, offers the, offer the monks and nuns clothing, food, Um, places to live, medicine, in order to sustain them so they can continue their practice and continue offering the teachings. The truth of the matter is that if this had not been going on for thousands of years, um, we would never have these teachings here. It has what has allowed the teachings to sustain over thousands of years. When I was thinking about this whole idea, um, I was trying to imagine myself as a Western woman, uh, each morning coming out in front of my my home, uh, um, a regular part of my day each day with um, standing there offering food uh, every morning 
to the passing monks and nuns as they would pass by my door. Um, Hard to imagine. (laughs) Even though I've seen that happening, um, uh, it seems so strange in our culture. We don't do that. Um, and tried to imagine what, how that would inform my life, if that was something I did every single day. Just took the food from my home and offered it to the passing um, Buddhist uh, monks and nuns. How that would um, inform me as a being and inform my life. How it would affect my mind, how it would affect my heart. I'm sure it would be uh, quite powerful. Just that 10 days of Wallace living at my house was um, very powerful, sim- very similar practice. And of course, it's not, um, it's not to say that all Buddhists in Buddhist countries are generous people. That it, you know, automatically they're the just wonderfully generous, kind, giving people. They're all different ways, just like we are. Um, In fact, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there's a practice um, for very selfish people. Um, it's It's a really interesting practice. Something very, very simple is given to um, a a very uh, selfish person. A person that's so selfish that they're really even selfish with themselves, a very kind of contracted, selfish being. They're given something simple like a potato. And the potato is in one hand. The practice is to pass the potato to the other hand. And then pass the potato back to the other hand. And pass the potato back and forth to themselves, from hand to hand to hand to hand, until it gets easy to do. And then they take on more uh, valuable objects, although potatoes in some places in Tibet are very valuable because that's almost all they have to eat. Um, And they start passing it to themselves, more valuable objects, back and forth, back and forth, as a practice, and then start passing the objects to other people and give it and get it back and give it and get it back. Such a basic practice, you know. And it seems to uh, make a difference for people that have that very sort of contracted, selfish personality, which people do all over the world. Some of us. The end of that practice the potato practice, uh, is that eventually um, the practice is done in a very formal way, um, and one offers, actually as a formal spiritual practice, one symbolically offers in a very particular way, in the form of a mandala, um, precious stones is the ideal way that it's done. Sometimes that's not available, so it might be rice. But precious stone, anywhere from precious stones to rice, and it's offered in a, in a, in the form of a mandala, a pile of precious stones to the Buddha, 
to the Dharma, to the Sangha, to all beings. And it's offered over and over and over and over and over again until the pile of precious stones or rice is all used up. It's all dumped again into a bowl and then done again and again and again and again, offering to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and to all beings. We actually did that practice in standing form uh, the other morning um, of offering all the accumulations we've ever accumulated, and that's how it's worded in the Tibetan practice, all the accumulations that have ever been accumulated from beginningless time, outer, inner, and secret, to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and all beings. So as the Buddhist teachings, the way that they've been offered for 2,500 years in this freely given way, when Western teachers came back in the 70s uh, from practicing in Asia, um, many of them had such a tremendously strong inclination and and deep wish to offer the teachings to anybody in, in uh, their own countries uh, that was interested. And the decision was made amongst many of these Westerners, some of whom uh, teach here at IMS, um, to do it in the same way, to offer the teachings freely, because it seemed impossible to put any kind of price on them, these priceless teachings. And so, and so it is done that way by many, many Buddhist teachers. And in this tradition, um, I think all of us take that vow uh, of offering the teachings freely, of not uh, charging a fee. Here at IMS, whatever is paid for any of the retreats is the cost of putting on the retreat, the practical cost of putting on the retreat. There's a small stipend that is given to the staff on a monthly basis and some health insurance. In this retreat, um, part of what was paid pays for uh, our transportation costs, mine, Seth's, and Jose's. It also gives Seth uh, some uh, fee. He gets paid a a small fee. salary, which he, we've discussed and he feels is adequate. Jose and I, um, other than our transportation and our care when we're here, um, just offer and don't um, get anything from IMS. And so... Um, the practice of dana continues this circle of of offering and receiving and i can say for me i actually um live totally on dana i don't have any other income in my life when i left here after living here for 4 years where i did get a small stipend and i did get insurance or i got a monthly more than just a small stipend i got 
enough to live on. Um, and I was taken care of, and insurance, health insurance. Um, but when I left here, I decided to live totally on dana. I mean, it seemed like I couldn't do anything else because I was teaching Dharma. And it's really um, an interesting and challenging and really um, powerful and rewarding practice. And it is a practice uh, because it's such an odd uh, situation in our culture. It's very powerful and very humbling. It's over and over again letting go of uh, the habit strong habit of expectation. And, of course, there are needs for survival. You know, food, clothing, shelter, etc., health. Um, and really not knowing what, what will be offered. Um, for me, over these years now, it's been uh, some years, a few years, um, I'm always surprised uh, uh, over and over again surprised at how generous um, people are. Uh, it's really uh, gratifying and certainly practically helpful. Um, So it, the practice of dana for the Buddhist teachers in this culture that have made the decision to continue this, this way of offering the teachings um, makes uh, what is a very substantial aspect of life for all of us, uh, the economic aspect of life, a spiritual practice. And it's... It's, it's, uh, it's a good practice. I'm grateful for it. Jose has asked me in this, um, in this talk to let you know that in his life um, he receives a retirement pension which offers him the support that he needs for his um, daily needs are taken care of through his retirement pension. So that the way that we, we um, share the dana is not 50-50, because our needs are different. I'd like to um, almost close with a, a poem that I thought of this afternoon when Seth um, ended his story. It's, it's about the circle of uh, the practice of life, so to say. Um, it's called A Love Letter. It's by a Japanese Buddhist poet Nanao Sakaki. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. 
within a shelter 10 meters large. You sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field 100 meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley 1,000 meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest 10 kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country, Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or the winter drifting ices in the sea of Oktok. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth, Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle 10 billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system mandala within a circle 10,000 light years large, the galaxy full blooming in spring, within a circle 1 billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry blossoms. Now within a circle 10 billion light years large, all thoughts of time space are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. I'd like to end by singing. This is a metta chant. It's a metta chant that's sung here a lot. Uh, Some of you may know it, some of you who uh, have sat here regularly. um, It's it's, uh, sung at the end of the three-month, every night at the end of the day uh, during the three-month retreat. And there are some other retreats where it's also sung. I'm going to sing it in Pali because that's how it's chanted. Um, It only takes a couple of minutes. Uh, And then I'll read it to you in English. And even though you won't know what the words mean when I sing it um, or chant it, just let it in, uh, the energy of it. It's the metta practice, the practice of loving-kindness in chant form. As as the teachings were learned, taught and learned for many centuries and still are in many monasteries, uh, they're learned this way, by chanting, by chanting them. Imaya Damanu Damapatipatiya Buddham Pujami Imaya 
Dhammanu Dhammapatipatiya Dhammam Pujemi Imaya Dhammanu Dhammapatipatiya Sangam Pujemi Aham Averohomi Abya Pajo Homi Anigo Homi Sukhiatanam Pariharami Mama Mata Pitu Acharyacha Nyatimitacha Sabrama Charinocha Avera Hontu Abya Paja Hontu Aniga Hontu Sukhiatanam Pariharantu Imazmi Marame Sabe Yogino Avera Hontu Abya Paja Hontu Aniga Hontu Sukhiatanam Pariharantu Amhakamaraka Devata Imazmim Vihare Imazmim Avase Imazmim Arame Araka Devata Avera Hantu Avyapaja Hantu Aniga Hantu Sukhiatanam Pariharantu Sabe Sata Sabe Panna Sabe Buddha Sabe Pugala Sabe Atabawa Pariyapanna Sabe Idio Sabe Purisa Sabe Arya Sabe Anariya Sabe Deva Sabe Manusa Sabe Vinipatika Avera Hantu Avya Paja Hantu Aniga Hantu Sukhiatanam Pariharantu Dukkha Muchantu Yata Lada Sampatito Mavigachantu Kamasaka Idam no Punyabagam Satanam Sadu 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 Since it's uh, about a minute or two after eight, I will put this up on the board rather than read you the English.
May all beings live in peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with each other. May all beings live in peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.